Hey fellow nerds, I'm Megan Smiley and this is the Lawyer's Escape Pod. For those of you who've gotten into practice, looked around and thought, so this is my life? I get it. You're in deep and you feel stuck. You may have no idea what the next step would be, or maybe you have an idea, but think it's unrealistic. I truly believe that there's a path forward for each of us if we're intentional about finding it. And this podcast will be a great source of advice and inspiration for you to make that leap to a more fulfilling career. Alexis Robertson is my guest today. She is currently the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley and Lardner. She tells us a little bit about her journey through law school and big law practice and litigation, eventually to recruiting and now to her work in the diversity and inclusion area. We talk about what real progress looks like in this area and what it doesn't look like and what some of the challenges in general are, but there are also some quite specific ones to our industry. Um, I think it's really important to take this moment in history with what's happening and use it as an opportunity to reflect, uh, to improve, (laughs) to do our part. Um, And when I say our, I mean white people's part um, specifically. Uh, And so I really hope you take to heart her advice, her thoughts, um, and really spend some time focused on this issue. Um, I think it's incredibly, incredibly important. Alexis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate your taking the time to come on. So, you know, I think our conversation will be a little different than my average conversation, but I do want to start at the beginning like I do with everyone, which is to ask, what made you go to law school in the first place? I wish I would have been this thoughtful about it at the time, but I think I went to law school because I always knew I was going to go to law school ever since I was a child. My my mother was a lawyer. She never practiced, but I think she raised me with a litigator's mindset. So I would say as of middle school, I was locked on to law school without much other inquiry or scrutiny. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I also come from a family of lawyers, so <laughs> perhaps we were just indoctrinated without our knowledge. <laughs> it was, it was, and I also have this side of me that's sort of artistic because my, my mother was a lawyer, my dad was an artist. Mm-hmm. So I was also into like technical theater and black and white photography. And I've joked that maybe another universe and doing one of those things, but yeah. the reality of what at least to me seemed the most lucrative professionally was you were going to law school. And so that, that was always the plan. Yeah. Yeah. And so was that sort of, you kept that plan? Did you go directly to law school? Oh, yeah. I I was not someone who was smart enough to skip grades or anything, but I would say that I went through very quickly. So a couple things. As of my freshman year of college, I could have told you when I was taking the LSAT, right? Like I was reading books about it. I knew the game. (laughs) I remember (laughs) the schools. And um, at the University of Michigan, they used to start a section in summer. So mm-hmm. I actually only had about two weeks off in between graduating from college and starting law school. 
oh my god, that sounds enormously exhausting to me. Yeah, <laughs> full steam ahead, becoming a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the fact that your personality was such that you know you could execute that probably means you know you were suited to it. <laughs> Perhaps in retrospect, I'm like, wow, that I had blinders on, and you know, there's pros yeah. and cons to that, but I was yeah. one thousand percent sure what I was doing. Yeah. So when you got to law school, what was your experience there? Was it sort of what you had had in your mind? I didn't really have many preconceived notions about it, but I love I loved the University of Michigan, and it was also yeah. interesting because I started early. They started there's I believe there were four sections at Michigan, maybe five, but I want to say it was four, one full section. So I think that's somewhere between 70 and 90 people used to start in the summer, but it was a sort of much more intimate way to start law school. And I believe we had two of the core doctrinal classes in addition to legal writing. I think that was right. Yeah, we had torts contracts and I believe legal writing, but it was just this really interesting way to start because campus, the full University of Michigan campus, as well as the law school, compared to what it is during the academic year, was very quiet. And you're really just with this group of people. So I want to say it was great. I'm sure it actually wasn't. (laughs) 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 I'm I'm romanticizing the experience now that I'm many, many years removed. But an experience, I became very tight with a number of people. Although I will say, um, I'm maybe jumping ahead a bit, because yeah. I was on campus, I was not someone who got as caught up in the like, what what hornbook are you using? You know, the class is really hard. And I studied for 12 hours last night, like that kind right. of one-off Yeah, I generally yeah. opted out of that completely. I just was in a bit of my own world. Yeah, I, I'm sure that helps. And also, particularly being young and going straight through, I think law school could also become a lot like high school if you were fully engaged in that way so and that can be some stress I think that's right I did not live so the University of Michigan Law School has a beautiful campus and law quad and the majority of the first years live I'd say two-thirds maybe more live on the law quad and I did not and just based on some of the antics I would sometimes pick up I think that I think that is right and actually I never even stepped foot into a law quad dorm room until maybe two years ago where I was back at the school and they were doing tours of renovations. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I, was, I was a little bit different in that way. Yeah. And was sort of the coursework and everything, did you know what you wanted to do when you were in law school? Was it what you expected it to be? Within my first year, I, I didn't. And it's so funny. I just look back and I just, I thought I was so smart. <laughs> I wasn't necessarily necessarily that reflective, but it wasn't until I had an opportunity to become a summer associate that my very strong litigation leanings became apparent to me. And it Mm -hmm. was hard to actually realize them, particularly while the first year, because generally the way they teach you is focused on litigation. Even if you're reading about contracts, it's usually after the contract went wrong and they're probably litigating about it. And that's why it's written up as a case because it made it to the court. Yeah, And um, when I did finally have the opportunity as a summer associate, both my 1L and 2L summers, to take um, non-litigation work or whatever sort of transactional assignments, I would just read them and be like, I don't know what this is. I can't. <laughs> my, my, my brain was just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to try all these things. It became so clear to me that I was supposed to be a litigator. Yeah. It's funny, I had the exact opposite <laughs> experience when I was like, oh, oh, 
I think I'm supposed to be corporate. <laughs> this is a thing. I don't have to go to court. Yes, let's do that one. But yeah. 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 And then all of my coursework really showed that. So when I did yeah. where I could take electives, I stayed away from basically everything more transactional or corporate focused, except for the yeah. courses I had to take. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you graduated, you went into litigation practice? Yes. So I, at graduation, joined Kirkland Ellis in Chicago as a commercial litigation associate there. Yeah. And what was your experience like there? Oh, it's interesting. As you can see, I'm like, I'm trying to think back. I yeah. liked working more than law school. And as you can tell, really? I did not, I did not mind That's law interesting because I hear a lot of people saying the opposite, that yeah. they love and the academics. No, yeah. no, no. I like the academics too. I think that's fun. Yeah. I'm definitely a very cerebral person. Yeah. But I, I, one, I liked making money. I liked not seeing my bank account go down through the course of the year, <laughs> as, you know, shallow mm-hmm. as that may sound. <laughs> No, but, it sounds practical. <laughs> but I, I think for me, because I'd never taken a break, I'd been in I'd been in school my entire life. So to be out right. and getting that practical application, but um, overall, I had a good experience at Kirkland. They trained yeah. me. I learned a lot. But I think it's very hard being an associate, no matter where you are. There's yeah. an enormous learning curve that has to happen, and I think that. That can be very, very daunting. And so when I do talk to junior associates or to, to law, or to law students now, mm-hmm. I do tell them, just know law school didn't really teach you how to be a lawyer. Your job is to mm-hmm. learn how to be a lawyer. And that means you're going to be on a lot, especially for those first few years. And so that was the case for me. Yeah. If you don't know what's going on, the least you can do is be present and available, which does mean that you're you're working quite a bit. Yeah. So if you, but you enjoyed the work itself or did you enjoy just working? It's hard. So in some ways I can't even remember because this is yeah. over a decade ago at this point. And as we know, you know, spoiler alert, I'm no, I'm no longer a practicing lawyer. Right, so. exactly. As my dad sometimes says, some, God has mercifully erased it from my memory. Right. It was a great like, I loved it. I, yeah. I, do, I really reflect on the first, say, two years, yeah. generally being disoriented. I don't know that I would have said it then, yeah. but in retrospect, I did not know what go, was going on, which means yeah. there there was a certain, definitely a certain level of stress there. But overall, yeah. I did really like the freedom that not having to, you know, be in school and worry about credits and next semester and all that provided. But also yeah. that whole experience for me, my my early years of practice is very much shadowed by the Great Recession mm-hmm. because my, I think my second year, which would have been 2009, was when Lehman Brothers collapsed yeah. and all the bad things happened. So there wasn't a lot of time <laughs> to get deeply um, introspective because instead yeah. I, I hit the, oh my gosh, please let me keep my job. I have not been doing this long enough to be able to find another one. And so there was right. a lot of gratitude for whatever work it was that I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I lived through that era as well as a junior associate. And um, yeah, it's interesting now to think, you know, I feel like I would mention that on this podcast, you know, months ago, and it, it sort of sounded like, oh, you're some old lady that lived through this thing. Yeah. And now, of course, everyone's living through another, you know, upheaval in, in in the law firm work world which is different but 
the things we learned there, yeah. I think are are helpful. And I do find myself reflecting a bit on that when I'm when I'm talking to other attorneys. But it's yeah. funny as I, as I look back, I also had both of my kids while I was uh while I was still an associate at Kirkland, and I left mm-hmm. I left Kirkland as a as a sixth year, so I was there for six years almost to the day, as I recall. Yeah. As, as much as I found I found the work to be very engaging. And there is a part of me that still holds that litigator's mindset, that feeling of, you know, you filed your brief and you're reading their, say their response brief and you're seriously like looking through it to see if you had all the points and to see if you anticipated. And there really is this like a a feeling, I don't want to go so far as calling it a rush, but there's something that I enjoyed about that. And I'm also someone who very much enjoyed being on my feet when I have the opportunity to go to court. Mm-hmm. So I still think I may maintain that, but yeah. it was such a crazy sort of time in my life when I look back and that I'm having kids, my husband went back to business school, there's an economic recession, and there right. wasn't necessarily a lot of time to do this soul searching, am I deeply happy? Because I was right. just right. Going, going with the flow. Yeah, I think that happens to a lot of us, even with fewer things happening you know really taking the time to do the introspective work is is tough especially if it hasn't occurred to you um but you did leave so at some point right you had what what was the thought process that led you to make a change i really wanted to do labor and employment work Mm -hmm. i even i even felt that way in law school and um for whatever reason, ultimately, I chose Kirkland with the thought that I can be a litigator. They can train me because in terms of, and I knew I wanted to be in Chicago. So in terms of Chicago, mm-hmm. to be a litigator, you know, Kirkland was probably the place to go to get trained yeah. to do that. And I figured, you know, I can see what employment work they have. It may not be a lot, but yeah. I will try to find what's there. And so I did that. I did manage to do some employment matters. But after the Great Recession, whatever employment work, and I'm so, by the way, I'm super far removed from but now, so, you know, this yeah. is not a comment on their current labor employment work. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it seemed that at the time they were, they got even less of it because things became even more fee sensitive. Right. And I right. a point where my husband emerges from business school. I've had my second kid. I'm back from leave. And it occurs to me, if labor employment work is what you really want to do, you need to go do that now mm-hmm. before you have a partner title or a non-equity yeah. partner title, because that move will be harder to make. So as a yeah. sixth year, I lateraled to Seiferth Shaw, and I joined their labor and employment practice. Yeah. And so, and how many years were you there? I was at Seiferth for right around 18 months. So I practiced for seven and a half years total with the, the bulk yeah. of Brooklyn. So did you enjoy the labor employment the way you thought you would? Well, that's how it goes. You follow a thread yeah. and get your yeah. and you wait for the yeah. skies, to, skies to part and for yeah. eternal happiness to descend upon you. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> that's what happened. I really did get the, the practice that I wanted. I also yeah. got a little bit of a reality check in terms of the type of litigation I've been doing before had been very large. And although mm-hmm. at Seifarth I did was predominantly doing complex class and collection collective action work, which means also relatively large matters, there was more right. plaintiff stuff in there. And I frankly was not accustomed to being in smaller lawsuits where mm-hmm. hey, a complaint was filed today, what do we do? Because I'd been in a lot more longer running things. So that right. was a reality, that was a shift, I'm gonna say reality check for me, but also essentially yeah. I had my wish and I was like, okay, um, I'm still not, I don't know what I was expecting, 
this yeah. is in fact what I wanted, but I'm not happy yet. Right. Yeah. And the thing is, I think that we all have to go through those steps, right? Like you can't, you can't know that wasn't right for you unless you've done it. Right. Well, and the, the, one of the through lines for me is I've kept trying to get closer to people. Yeah. So in my view, and others may disagree within the types of law I could have practiced, I felt like litigation. All right. Yeah. We're going to be fighting over contracts or there's disputes, but to me, it was adversarial in the sense that it's people or corporations having dispute. Okay, I can understand that. And then, then yeah. let's, let's really get to the people. It's, it's employment. It's literally about people. Right. All right, I am there. And then what has happened is as I've continued in my career, I, I, I feel that I've actually gotten more on the front lines in terms of the interactions and concerns about, about people within an organization. Yeah. So after 18 months there and you weren't happy, you moved into recruiting. Right. I did. I like to say, you know, the universe started to conspire. Yeah. Wheels start turning. And I thought, as most lawyers do, well, clearly if you go in house Alexis, yeah, everything will be amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I started the search to go in house. I yep. actually reached back out. I can't remember how, but I was connected with um Kirk Kirkland has a really robust alumni program and career counseling program connected with one of their career counselors who I was like, okay, he's going to have like a resume book for me, but whatever, I'll check it out. And um, he really pushed me. I was like, why do you want to go in-house? What makes you think that in-house is what will suit you? And on one fateful day, we went to lunch and he very bluntly told me, you are not happy. You do not like practicing. What are you doing? And I said, I don't know why you are life coaching me right now. This is not I know, I'm but what a gift. <laughs> I'm here for your eight easy steps to go in house. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he also pointed out, you know, you're an optimistic person. You're going to make the best of everything. And at the time, I don't even know to what extent I fully let what he said sink in, but I sort of heard it. Yeah, sort of. yeah. But I also had heard about an opportunity to become a legal recruiter. Mm-hmm. And at that point, and it's so funny how I would say that tiny voice inside you, you know, you're yeah. a little bit accustomed to ignoring it. It starts. Oh yeah. I feel like being a lawyer is a whole life, you know, yeah. engaged yeah. in ignoring it. <laughs> well, I will. I'll say a few words about that in a moment. But yeah. I had seen an opportunity to become a recruiter. And I also knew um, the woman who was leading this, this search for a, a, a colleague, essentially. And I thought to myself, yeah. you know what, meet with her. You can learn about this job that you would never, you clearly wouldn't take it. You would never take this in a million years. But also yeah. she can tell you about going in-house. Maybe you need to lateral again, you know, as I just right. did the search. And so I did, you know, we met up, I learned more. And eventually I decided that I should try that opportunity to be a recruiter. And I'll also, I will also say that overall, when it comes to finding professional alignment, mm-hmm. I truly believe there are people who, they are lawyers and, and legal practice is very fulfilling to them. It just yeah. turned out, and I work with them day in, day out in my current role, but it yeah. didn't turn out that it wasn't the best fit for me. Yeah. You know, I always say that on this is that I, I don't think that a hundred percent of people who became lawyers need to leave the practice of law. You know, I think there are those people and I definitely know them too, that you're like, wow, this is, this is where you should be. Yeah. <laughs> and, I've, and I've worked with them because I've yeah. worked with them phenomenal and, Actually, it was the contrast. Not, not, I don't, I know that I was not by any means a, a bad lawyer or a bad associate, yeah. to the contrary, but yeah. I didn't have the, the passion right. that, that sustained you through those late nights 
that, yeah. that keeps you going that doesn't make it feel as much of a grind right right was it hard for you to say okay I I've put you know since I was a little kid I thought I was going to be a lawyer and now here I am at the precipice of giving up that title that profession like all the work and effort that went into it once again in retrospect it all seems so easy but no it was definitely yeah. very scary at the time yeah. I've talked about this quite a bit, and ultimately, I don't think as much of my identity was wrapped up in being a practicing attorney as I think it is for most of us. And yeah. I'll say, because I imagine we're both still, you know, we still consider ourselves lawyers in a way. Um, yeah. yeah. So that so that really did help. But what was also tough for for me and for my family was the financial hit that needed to happen for me to make that leap. Right. And having to sit down and have some very real discussions about finances. And, you know, what, what life could look like, because what if I was terrible at recruiting? Right, you know, right. And we, my husband and I really sat down, we had a spreadsheet that was like, okay, can we still afford daycare? Okay, we have right. student loans. Well, how much is, you know, we, we have a mortgage to pay. And that was one of the most daunting things. And in retrospect, I really, really commend my husband for fully supporting me. Yeah. And I don't know that that would have been a given for everybody because it, it, I mean, I just, I spent about what, three years, maybe, give or take, maybe less, between leaving Kirkland, you know, the salary changed to go to Cypharth because I took a seniority hit because I hadn't been a dedicated yep. lawyer or a dedicated employment lawyer. Right. And then I was like, well, let's just make less money and become a legal person. Right, right. <laughs> and um, ultimately those things all worked out for me. But to, in some ways I found the finances much more daunting than the, the concerns about my identity. Right, right. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> I still very much carry carry with me. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, there is a person, personality trait that we, we probably tend to fall on the risk-averse end of the spectrum. Yeah. And it's yeah. hard to just say, oh, it'll just work out. Even though I, I have come to believe that that is true if you take some leaps. But I mean, take the leap yeah. and then that will appear. But no, I yeah. That's right. If you look at the type of people who tend to go to law school, yeah, you know, we're we're risk of we're kind of like okay, law school is a sure thing. At least you know, yeah. people think that here's here's the skills I'll get. Here's the type of job I'd be able to get. And also, as I said before, I I am still a very cerebral person, but we as lawyers tend to spend a lot of times in our heads. It's where we prefer to be. Yeah, but it can make us um, a bit disconnected. Many of us from whatever broader intuitive or even I mean to get kind of out there like soulful pull or connection yeah having we, we will deny that I totally agree and I say that a lot here is that I think getting in touch with that is and of course the lawyer wants like a roadmap how to get in touch with my soul's purpose yeah, you know? But, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, you know, I think that is really, uh, yeah, I think it's important. It's work and it, it is, it is harder maybe for us than others because it, it does run contrary to our natural inclinations. <laughs> but so, so you went on to recruiting, left practice behind, but you didn't stay there forever. I <laughs> Years. I really, really liked recruiting, by the way. Yeah. I would not be surprised if at some point in my life, I somehow am able to continue using those skills. Although I do, I think I sort of do on the side. I see a lot of people calling me about jobs. 
but yes, yeah, I'm a single yeah. recruiter. Um, I really enjoyed it because back to my through line, you are working yeah. directly with people and it's yeah. not only thought of this way, but a job search is one of the most vulnerable times in someone's life. I think yeah. short of like buying houses, getting married, getting divorced, deaths and families, it is, it is tough to look for a job and yeah. to be able to help people do that really, really resonated with me. So really enjoyed recruiting, but yeah. I was recruit. I was at a, the announce conference, actually, I want to say it was April, 2017, where I presented along with a couple of um, friends slash colleagues on recruiting and retaining millennial attorneys of color. Mm-hmm. And I met someone who was at Baker McKenzie and she subsequently reached out maybe a few weeks later and said, Hey, we're hiring for this job in diversity and inclusion. Would you be interested? And my initial thought was, nope. <laughs> because, <laughs> and this is also a theme in my life. And they'd be like, nope, but thanks for asking. Yeah. But then yeah. because I'm a recruiter and because I always tell others to at least go, go learn more. What is the purpose yeah. of find out more information? I did. And what they had going on at Baker McKenzie was sufficiently interesting where I was like, you know, go find out more. And once again, yeah. one thing leads to another, and I joined Baker McKenzie as North American Manager of Diversity and Inclusion. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting because the reason why that conversation happened was because you were presenting on something that presumably, you know, mattered to you as you were mm-hmm. invested in, even if it wasn't necessarily, you know, directly your job, but it put you in the line to meet that person that, you know, then led yeah. you to where you are. It did. Um, so, had you? How did you know you start working in that space? I imagine it has to do with your lived life experience. Um, yeah. And well, yeah, here's another reason why it was so attractive to me. And I will just brag on Baker McKenzie for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. They were at a point where they were really investing a lot more in diversity and inclusion. It had been a value of the firm. But they yeah. had they had brought in their former director of diversity inclusion at last, so they hired another one, Anna Brown, yeah. who's still there. She's another global director. She's amazing. And for me, learning and seeing how intentional they had been in recruiting, in recruiting yeah. Anna, it meant that I would have the opportunity to learn. Because yes, I knew many things about law firms, law firm life. I had the experience of being, you know, a black woman working in some very large law firms, and I did understand the recruiting side of things because I've been an outside recruiter. Right. But it was very important to me that there was someone there that I could work with and learn from. Right. And so um, in many ways, I think diversity and inclusion work takes a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence, but there are best practices and there are things you can can learn to be most effective within your organization. And I was very fortunate to be able to work with her and and learn from her. Yeah. And what are some of those things like if you think in the in the industry now what are these best practices because you've you've mentioned recruiting but I also know just from having um you know listened a little that you know that's one pillar of what you do you know there are also other elements well so in some ways this is all over the place and I actually probably yeah. should I'm going to qualify best practices after I say learn about yeah. say now yeah but generally the 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 pillars, excuse me, of, of diversity and inclusion are recruitment, retention, promotion. So those mm-hmm. are the kind of three umbrellas of basically everything you're working on. And then there's really a fourth one we don't talk about a lot, but also client 
engagement and being responsive to a client. So that's there, that's there as well. And then mm-hmm. within that, um, and something that can be difficult coming in cold without having any exposure to the industry are whether it be, you know, working with affinity groups or all the many surveys and awards and outside organizations that mm-hmm. can be beneficial to your firm to either be aware of or to partner with. Right. Certainly there are people who walk in and, and figure it out, but it is really nice to, to walk in and be like, oh, okay, so you all have been working with this organization for a long time. Have you considered this one? Or our demographics are such that they show X. It would be really great for our marketing materials if we went ahead and applied for this outside awards, that it would be more mm-hmm. visible to the outside world that we value this. Overall, and this depends, and I'm really only commenting generally on the legal industry as I have some yeah. sense for DNI yeah. more probably, but generally legal what I know. Yeah. The role that the diversity person plays varies quite widely. Yeah. It can be anything from supporting what I will call the activities of diversity, meaning your affinity groups, cultural heritage months, and perhaps making sure that the various surveys and awards are going out and being applied for on time. And then all the other kind of little stuff that can come up, but in some ways can almost be a bit administrative. And that's what you'll right. see with some of the, um, I don't know, they might have a title of like coordinator or something like that. But yeah. as you go up that, that chain from manager to director to maybe chief, Mm-hmm. You end up being much more embedded into the, the day-to-day, in and out, the way the firm itself runs, full talent right. management, and also client engagement. Yeah. And I, it was very helpful for me to see, and, and working with Anna, because she'd been in, in this area, I think, at this point for over 20 years, Yeah. how important yeah. it was to have an understanding of it across across the board and to not just be limited to only looking at practices and recruiting. Because we all right. there are, you know, talent management, talent development practices, because if it affects our people, it probably affects our diversity attorneys or our staff um, doubly or quadruply. And I'm sorry, I'm, I've totally lost the form and the structure of this question. Oh, <laughs> but, no, no worries. So I sort of wanted to turn to say, I mean, I think that makes sense. And what I, you know, because I think there, you know, there's a wide range of how invested any given institution is going to be in some of this work right so you know you you sort of describe one end of it but obviously the goal would be to really have this not just be a, a series of check boxes that you can say okay well we're aiming for you know a percentage of 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 you know our incoming class to be people of color rather that you know recruiting is what a lot of people talk about but i would think that the other things that really happen in the community of the law firm is a, is also where a lot of the yeah. important work is done. So, so what you see generally based on, I don't know, overall firm demographics, a lot of firms are doing better at recruiting. We could certainly yeah. do that, but it really is the retention and promotion where we're, we're very much struggling. And yeah. I've gotten to the point where I've started to have to place some bets because as much as I said the whole best practicing thing before, sorry, yeah. practices, we do not have a firm that we can point to as saying, look, they are done. They have done it. Right. So I do think, and, and we, I, you know, we throw that term around. I certainly throw that term around, but a lot of times best practices can mean this kind of is what people tend to do. Right. right. <laughs> so, yeah. No, and I'm, you know, I feel like we're also in a moment, particularly right yeah, now, where... moment, which is, which is extremely 
interesting to me to say the least in so many ways, because I think for, I'll say people of color, but then I will say, let's talk about black people because right yes. now the is really focused on um, racism as it relates to, to, to black people. Yeah. And it's a unique experience, right? Yeah. I mean, you, so, in so, one that you have lived in, you know, right. multiple sort of d- predominantly white so, environments. Yeah. So we are talking about this now in June 2020, in case somebody yeah. is listening to this <laughs> yeah. now. But nothing has changed for Black people since last month. It's just that there's tremendous awareness now, for whatever reason, because we've all been at home quarantined for coronavirus, and maybe we're paying more attention. But what we're seeing in terms of the attention, and the protests and, you know, even like looting and some, some violence, it is, it's the last time we saw something like this, it was the 1960s. And so there's this tremendous right. moment of awareness that for somebody who does the job I do, yeah, we've been talking about this for a very long time, but it does feel like everybody's listening now. <laughs> Right, because it must have been feeling like a little like beating your head against a wall for years. I, I just, I imagine doing this work in a world so, where. It's funny because yes and no, I have to have some level of maybe unwarranted optimism or maybe some would call it okay to not get you know, frontal about that feeling. But I think what we've seen, and I hope, is awareness that will allow us to really push push forward some of the things as diversity professionals we've been recommending for a long time, but perhaps for whatever reason, didn't have the support from the industry. And that as much as right now is this quite scary, uncertain time, we can use it as a catalyst for, for change, which everything I said is super cliche, but I can't help but hope that that's what's happening. Yeah. And, and I think it is, a, I mean, I hope to do that. I hope to bring, you know, my little following to thinking about this as well. And, you know, I wonder specifically with this energy behind it right now, what are some of the challenges to adopting, to, you know, not just adopting a policy, but truly like incorporating, you know, you know, the idea of retention and all of that into our world. Yeah, so diversity inclusion cannot be seen as separate from the rest of the business. Too often it's like a separate line item as if for some reason talking about the people in an organization doesn't relate to the rest of the organization. I mean, it does. It has to be woven into everything. But getting more specific, and this is is something that I was talking about in 2017 at that presentation. With Mm -hmm. recruiting, we absolutely have to broaden the schools in which we recruit. Most of the top firms, you know, let's pick on say the Amlock 50, they all recruit yep. from the exact same schools. They all yep. recruit usually top 20 schools and then maybe the local school to whatever office, the yeah. rest of the schools in the country don't matter. And we will right. then lament how we just don't see the diverse talent we're looking for. But I think what this shows is, so if, if, if many more of us are now willing to acknowledge the systemic racism and lack of opportunity for, you know, once again, mm-hmm. the black community, why are we unable to acknowledge that that also plays a part in the schools that black people go to? And yes. that means that the top 20 schools cannot be viewed as a proxy for excellence. They are often the proxy for people who knew to go to a top 20 school. So for me, right. I was fortunate in that, yes, my mother had practiced, but she, or not practiced, or had gone to law school. Right. She had gone, as she'll describe it, to some little school in Georgia nobody had heard of. And yeah. I had the 
foresight to grab some books and read and they told me what I should do. But had I not, I also may have thought law school is law school. I, like, I wouldn't have known about, you know, how kind of a lead and the pedigree and all of that. So yeah. what you got, and it's not just for, you know, black people. You see this a lot with all people of color and also within socioeconomic status. Yeah. They will go to the school closest. And because it's law school, I can still work from home. I can help my mom. And so it's just not true that the top schools are the proxy for the best talent. There's a Harvard Business Review article from 2015. I cite it all the time, but it's titled, I think it's something like why professional services firms are wasting millions recruiting from the same schools. So that is is one big thing we could do. But just that, I will not pretend like that's easy because within large law firms, we have a system for recruiting that we've been doing for a very long time, on-campus interviews. Maybe there's some job fairs, maybe for one else, we'll take some resumes, but to open it up and engage more schools, I think is a daunting task. So I'm, I'm the first to admit that. But once again, since we're in this movement right now, maybe it's time that we embrace the daunting so that we can stop with the like, the same firms will make the same offer or make offers to that same, you know, black exactly. at Harvard. And then they lament that they can't recruit black attorneys. (laughs) Right, right. No, because I think there's this idea of, well, look, we want to hire people. They're just not applying. They're just not interested in our firm. And it becomes this self-fulfilling loop. And I just, and so I've been talking about that for years, but frankly, so have many other people. And we'll, you know, we will see what the industry does when it, when it comes to that, because I do think that lawyers are risk averse. We're not really into innovation. We look to nope. see well, who else is doing that. So let's see who's going to be be a first mover on that. But then also, we still do need the affinity groups, the Heritage Month celebrations, and all of that. That's I think is a floor, but we need to elevate things and I think really start looking at systems. So I am keenly aware of the role that implicit bias pays and plays in the assignment system. Within large law firms, I think there are few firms that are really dealing with like this intentional, overt, you know, exclusionary or discriminatory behavior. But I do think that affinity bias is a thing. <laughs> it is real. Yep. Yep. That we are biased towards what we know, towards what we like. And that yep. when your choice, if you are a senior partner at a firm and your choice is between the guy who went to the same law school you did. Yep person, you know, maybe person of color and you have had not had a lot of exposure to people of color, it's not necessarily that you feel any negative intent towards them, but you, there's just something you really like about this other guy. And we see that play out in so many ways. Of course, not just when it comes to race, but also gender and other factors. And if we can become much more intentional and have systems for how assignments are given out, we can start to neutralize more of that. I don't think it by any means is, you know, the, the panacea that fixes everything. But I certainly think it's a part of the solution. And I also feel a lot of empathy towards people that are trying to navigate this because I think it's very hard to every year to go to an implicit bias workshop and have someone tell you, all right, or, or subconscious bias, or they call it, you have biases you're not aware of that are motivating your behavior. Please fix them. <laughs> And it's just like, okay, if I don't know their motive, how do I? So systems like that, what I think go a long way in helping people instead of constantly wagging a finger at them, telling them that they're not doing their personal work. <laughs> you know, you, I need you to explore more and understand why. Like that's going to take a long time. So work allocation is a is a big area that I'm I'm yeah. 
although just but it is true that it's necessary right in the awareness you know unless that people accept their awareness the you know then it's very hard to it's hard to implement a a, a more concrete plan as to how to work around it a couple of things because so work allocation of benefits while outside of diversity and inclusion there's also some major just revenue driving factors you can staff people up much more quickly if you have less of an organic means of staffing if it's much yeah. more you know, you know, we track all open things, you are new to our firm, here you go. But also what we're seeing now in this moment is people are really pushing on the U on the US and its system of white supremacy, right? And that I need to explain because to some they're they're gonna get caught up on that. But we are talking much more about how in the United States we are a country that values whiteness. It tends to be the default setting, it tends to be the default value. And the, many of the structures we have in place protect that, right? So if yeah. somebody has grown up in this system, well, yes, we absolutely, and I just posted a video on LinkedIn about this this week, you need to do the personal work to examine the way race, the roles race plays in your life, how you view race. But to think that one workshop is gonna be enough to neutralize a lifetime of growing up in a society that heavily values, for lack of a better term, whiteness, I think that's a little bit short-sighted. So it's absolutely important we have those presentations. I do those presentations all the time. I really enjoy having those discussions, but I think we have to work on this on all fronts. So yes, the personal responsibility front is one, but absolutely if we can if we can create systems within within the law firm or the organization to help neutralize that as well, let's do both. Yeah. And I would think it's also, um, it's something that everyone in whatever community, whether it's the U.S. or if it's in your law firm, you know, this, it's not the job of you as the DNI director to solve this problem for your firm. It is that, you know, whether it's a partner or a first year associate, everyone has, you know, these, they can be micro actions, micro decisions based on, you know, working on this awareness, but yeah. it is, it's in each of our hands. It's yeah. not somebody else's job. It's in, everyone's, it's in everyone's hands. And so the firms that I think are going to make the most progress are the ones who really do elevate DNI within the firm. It is brought up within the context of everything, but it is very clear that it is something we as a firm, as, a, <clears throat> as all the attorney staff, whatever, that we are committed to because no, I mean, just even thinking about it, saying, you know, we have a team of yeah. one or four or six who focus on diversity and they are going to single-handedly change um, yeah. these issues without you know, significant involvement from everyone else. It just doesn't, just doesn't work out. It just doesn't make sense. No. And that's why it's, it's sort of, you know, people have to, if, if you see a problem, then you say something, right? Because if you, as a white person working in a firm, see a problem and you think it's hard to go raise that to the higher ups guess yeah. what it feels like i would imagine to the to your black colleague feeling like they would have well, to go say something about it a lot of this is really insidious and yeah but not it's weird it's insidious but not intentional i really think of it as a tailwind on a very long journey so if it is a lot about the nudge here the extra assignment there that one gets back to let's you know back to that affinity bias it's not necessarily that it's it's outrageous in how it looks initially. It just so happens that, you know, Dave, who's a white male associate, got some really great assignments his first couple of years. 
for reasons that people maybe aren't even noticing and it'd be very hard to call out. It just so happens that, you know, the, the black woman from whatever school, she did not. And that happens all the time to associates, right? But what it is, is the, it's, it's how it's compounded over many, many years and then compound that with access to training. So another thing that's really important for diversity and inclusion, I think is robust professional training and development for your attorneys. If it's not formal, it means it's informal. And who's less likely to have really great informal training? It's people who traditionally find themselves in the category of, of other. But, and, it, and, yeah. it, and it keeps going. Also, how is the review process? How is feedback given? Oftentimes what you'll see is diverse attorneys or professionals will not get the feedback of their non-diverse colleagues back to the comfort level. And right. I, I think it's a bit of a stereotype, but I think it holds true. If I am comfortable with you, I'm much more likely to be like, Megan, I did not like your brief. That was not good. If I am not, I'm going to be like, I hope she reads the revisions of the brief. And once again, let's just compound that over the say 10 to 12 years it takes to make partner at a firm. So it ends up being this sort of, um, I think, death by a thousand cuts. Which is why it's so hard. I think it's unfair to give the impression that firms are just missing wildly intentional discrimination. And let, you know, and the, once again, that is there. Some people ha do have atrocious experiences. I don't want to discount that. But I think what we see more is we don't know what to do with these like small little actions that are just com compounded over the years. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of tied to that in terms of, um, you know, you think about who who are you putting the onus on to to fix this? And I, you know, I heard you speak once about the issue of trust within an environment like this. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to like what a black woman's experience of trust level would be in this so, kind of environment. Trust is very, very important. But oftentimes I think, oh gosh, I need even to broaden this a bit. I think we often look to the marginalized to fix their condition. Oh, you're marginalized. Please tell me how to fix it. And we'll say things in, um, you know, picking on legal again. Well, they would have just told us, you know, just you can speak up and tell someone. And I think that is assuming trust you do not have, particularly with diverse attorneys who have gotten to where they are by not being the squeaky wheel and who frankly do not trust you. Because if they are the ones who are saying, well, you know, I'm feeling a little single out here, left out there. And especially with, with Black people, who for hundreds of years lived in this country have had all sorts of stereotypes. And now we often combat, say, the angry Black woman or yeah. that Black people are aggressive, which is, you know, really what we're dealing with right now when it comes to police violence and brutality, this underlying view that a Black person is more aggressive and needs to be more under control. To ask, to ask a Black person to really speak up about mistreatment is something that generally you are not going to get until you have built a tremendous amount of trust. And that takes a lot more than saying, please just trust us and come forward if you don't like something. And too often what we will do is after someone leaves, say, well, but she only told us we totally would have fixed it. As if once again, the onus was back on that person that we don't have a responsibility as the organization. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I sort of, you know, in thinking as if someone's listening to this and, you know, in thinking what okay, what does that mean for you? It means if you're, you know, one example of a little thing is is be sensitive to your coworkers. And if you can put yourself in between, you know, them and expressing something, maybe that is a little useful thing you could do. You know, just not, not, not assuming that it's going to be the black 
colleague and the DNI director that solved that problem. Also, I think really getting interested about your perspective and um, in diversity inclusion circles, we call it your cultural lens. So notice who you interact with and how you feel when you do it. Are there certain people that you are more likely, you know, you're checking out, well, remember when we could check out at the grocery store? Yeah. <laughs> Sort of. My future be able to do that again. But yeah. who do you smile at when you're in line? Yeah. Do you, do you do you strike up a conversation with the the woman or man checking you out at the register? Maybe you're someone who doesn't anybody, or are you more likely to do it if it's a certain type of person? Do you feel like you maybe need to cross the street when you see certain kinds of people but not others? And it's actually somewhat hard for me to give these examples because they can sound. I mean, I mean, ridiculous, frankly, but I think we all have these moments in our life where we look ahead and we see somebody approaching us, whether it be in the hallway at work or while we're on the sidewalk, and we have a judgment about them. And it's either that they are safe or they are not safe, or we assume they that we know their life. We play a script about them. And as humans, we are hardwired to do this. Like, this is me jumping into implicit bias training. But it is, it is, it is how we survive. We did not survive by assuming there wasn't a bear in the bushes, right? Those ancestors didn't make it. So we have this hardwired negativity bias. And we don't want to suffer from analysis paralysis because if we have to like look at all things anew, we'd never get anything done. But we play scripts about people. And it's fine in a lot of ways to have certain kinds of bias. The goal is not to be biased. Like I really like the color blue. My whole house is blue. I'm not doing that. But we have to scrutinize the bias that confronts us when when encountering people. And I think too often, we just don't look at it. We're like, I'm going to keep giving the work to Mike. Because Mike did a great job last time, right? But we don't think, wait, okay, he did do a good job. But do I, you know, am I more comfortable with him? Because culturally, we're similar. How do I feel when I consider reaching out to the associate who has, who's, whose English is a second language? Now, I met her. She, she, you know, speaks and she writes well, but I'm I'm actually a bit uneasy. And here's the scary part: this requires admitting bias. And I think too many of us have been hardwired to be like, nope, nope, I love everybody. I can't say that it won't be okay. But I'm talking about the conversations you have with yourself. And I know, for instance, and I mean, it's even scary to share this, right? Because we judge people. But I definitely know as an American, like you know, stepping away from the race thing for a bit. Certainly, will have judgments when I meet someone for the first time who's from another country because I'm really, really American. Like you almost wonder, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do certain things or say certain things. Will they have a reference frame of reference for that? And what I do now is I notice that I push through it, and inevitably, five minutes, ten minutes later, I'm embarrassed to myself because I'm so incredibly wrong. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Like, it is taking those moments to start second guessing ourselves to start pausing. And in law firms, the pause usually comes when it is time to either recruit someone, either give someone work, or write a review for someone. Yeah. You can do it there. But I can't tell you how hard it is because so much of us, so many of us think we're just going to decide. And then the next day, fine. Like, oh, no, I, I decided yesterday I won't, I won't have a negative view of that sort of person anymore. <laughs> right, right. That's not how it works. <laughs> right. I, you know, it's it's like you said, there's no, there's no magic pill for this. And, you know, nobody thinks that, but, you know, I think, I think 
I just hope <laughs> that we are at an inflection point where more people take on the personal responsibility of doing this work yeah. on an ongoing basis, not just this week. And the um, other, thing, other thing is, normally, and not, not exclusively, but normally to be white in America means you're free from this inquiry. It does not, it does not mean that life is easy. Not at all. There's still plenty of difficulties in life, but it means your race isn't one of the things making it hard. And so as you start doing the work of difficult conversations and being introspective, you can run into some things you don't like. And the challenge is to not turn around and run back, to, to not say, well, you know what, I'm now uncomfortable. I'm not going to do this because it, it is uncomfortable and that's okay. And that means you're doing it, doing the right thing and making the free. And I can't stress that enough because I do think when things get hard, particularly when it's something that we don't technically have to do. You don't have to have this level of self-inquiry. We're like, well, never mind. Um, I'm trying my best. I'm going to go back <laughs> to what I was doing before. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I'm really asking is that people people not do that. And un unfortunately, when you do make this inquiry, you will likely find things that, that you don't like and realize you had some assumptions that you did not know you had or were not proud to have had. But it's yeah. not about judging yourself for those. It's about acknowledging them in the moment and making a different decision. And yeah, that, that's really something that I want to stress and that also everybody has this to some extent, but the richness of life isn't us challenging ourselves. That's how you're going to have the interaction with someone you wouldn't normally have and learn something yeah. you wouldn't normally known. but it's hard. I, I won't pretend like this isn't hard. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard, but I just, it's, I think a moment for us all you know, and I say us meaning white people <laughs> to to do this reflection. And if ever there was a moment in time when there are resources that you can go and find, um, you know, like I said, sort of before that lawyers, they want, you know, they want you to give them the roadmap <laughs> and then they'll do it. Like there are roadmaps, there are some pretty decent roadmap starting points out there right now. Go follow so them. Google is there for yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah have, exactly. We also have people <laughs> compiling resources, but I think what we often miss in all the resources now, because it is the, you know, you can on protest, you can donate, you can do this, you can do that. But I will keep beating the drum of please look at yourself. Please look at yourself because I, I don't know. I just think there's so many examples that you can think of in your life where, and I, here's an important thing to know because we live in a world, not a world, in this country that is so focused on white and the dominant and like the, the, the good, other minorities also hold these negative views. And so I should just touch on this quickly and I won't be mindful of time, but in 2014, Erin Reeves, who's a fantastic diversity consultant and her company did a study, her company's called Nexions, where they sent out the exact same resume to I think it was 60 law firm partners um, so they told, they had, they're both the same resume. Sorry, I just can't speak because I'm talking to you. <laughs> but, um, but the only difference was that they said one was written by a black associate, one was written by a white associate. Exact same memo. I might have called it a resume because there's also resume studies on this, but exact same memo. They had them grade it. They sent it back. Exact same memo, higher marks for the one that was done by the white associate. They found less errors, even though it was the same memo. They wrote comments like shows great promise. But when it was the black associate, it was, I can't believe this guy went to Columbia. It was, you know, needs remedial writing. Literally the exact same memo. Oh, 
partners were equally as hard on the Black associate writing and memo because they too hold this bias. And I have to be careful because I'm by no means saying that Black people are responsible, no means, but I'm, I'm just pointing out that we all have work to do, all of us. And, so, and you know, whether it relates to race, to gender, to class, to sexual orientation, whatever, there's, there's work for all of us to do and we just have to accept it and be kind to each other as we're doing this work. Yeah, yeah. To, to understand that we absolutely can't can't shy away from it, and that, I mean, so many people are relying on you, listener, on you not yeah. shying away from it. Right, right. Um, yeah, I'm gonna put some of my thoughts in in the, in the intro too, but just you know, we're lawyers. We, you know, <laughs> justice should matter to us, <laughs> and um, I think that particular responsibility on us, frankly. Well, and that's the elephant in the room as well, because right now we do see a lot of lawyers and, and firms making that exact point. We are attorneys who've taken an oath to fight fight injustice, to battle discrimination, but our numbers don't add up to that value that we're espousing, because to say that that's our highest value, but we have 1.97% of equity partners in large firms are, are Black. Those are there's a mismatch there. Back to the we we really have to inquire to figure out why. What is that disconnect? And so let's do the work externally, but let's also do the work internally, both on a personal level and within our organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I really appreciated it. I know that the listeners will appreciate it. And I really do hope everyone heeds your your advice to do the to really start with the internal work yes absolutely well thank you so much for having me delighted to be here and as you like to know i'm very active on linkedin so if anyone's looking for me that is where to find me all right great thank you alexis thanks so much